Good morning and welcome to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. It's the 16th of November. <laughs> Nearly lost my train of thought. Uh, I'm sure most of our listeners will know that, uh, um, you know, there was a, re- well, not a resounding, but we did, um, the yes vote did win yesterday, so most of us have been out partying. Good morning, Rashida. Good morning. I still lost my voice. Yeah. Yelling, <laughs> yes, finally, Australia woke up. <laughs> Good morning, Grace. Yeah, well, we woke up for for all the right reasons. I think um, you've got two sides. You've got other people who cared more about the football result than... You oh, know. that's right. Yeah. qualified 3-0. Well, we don't what? talk about that here. Qualified. See, as Grace said, what? That was, it's <laughs> I'm not real. French here, Grace, and <laughs> I know that. It's not real. It's Your football. We don't talk football. about that on this show, but... Um, what a fantastic day yesterday. Oh, um, that was great. Honestly, you know, even I'm always trying to find something to say, uh, you know, like, oh, but, but, there is no but. It was a yes, and that's an amazing feeling. An amazing feeling. So yes. we'll talk about that more in detail at um, 7.30. But first, at 7.15, we will be um, um, listening to Fiona Villela, who will be speaking to Catherine House from... Uh, Newland's Friends of the Forest, and they'll be discussing the Northcote by-election. Um, but obviously, you know, we can't talk too much about that, but they're talking really about forest protection and their huge potential of jobs in sustainability and tourism, uh, not necessarily about, you know, who um, is running and who isn't. Uh, at 7.30, we'll talk about the yes vote. We'll discuss the statistics and details and what it means and what Dean Smith's uh, legislation means. And at 7.45... Um, we're going to be talking to Sophie, who was working on Manus over Easter, and we're going to be talking about what happened um, at Easter with um, some violence that was inflicted on the, the refugees that live there, and also what's happening at the moment. Uh, and we know we spoke to our Chris Breen from Refugee Action Collective last week, and they what there was an appeal, um, and I wasn't sure whether it was meant to happen. That, that week, or I've been online to try and find out, you know, what, what's happened with the appeal, so hopefully I might get some insight into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after eight, we'll be talking to Donna Stolzenberg, who is the director of Melbourne Homeless Collective. Um, and this is going to be part of our uh, 16 days of action. And essentially, Melbourne Homeless Collective are going to receive a $50,000 community sector back Banking Social Investment Grant for a new project helping women fleeing violence um, and regain their financial independence. So that's going to be our show. Exciting. Very good. A 3CR supporter. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari. Brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. Uh, We're back on the first official day of Australians embracing 
same-sex message, uh, marriage, <laughs> 61.6, not necessarily, you know, the other, the other 39 point something percent. We'll talk about that later on. But today, uh, and I was trying to, um, get the, uh, AMWU representative Tracy, uh, to talk to her. There is a, a support the UGL SO, SO workers from Gippsland who were sacked and then offered to reapply for their jobs back but with anti-family shift rosters and massive cuts to their wages and conditions. So I think this is the Longford plant uh, in Gippsland. The workers took a stand and said no to ESSO's corporate greed, and they've been protesting outside. It's, yeah, uh, I remember speaking about this in June. They've been protesting outside the uh, Longford gas plant since June. Uh, there is a solidarity bus trip to visit the workers at their picket line in Longford. Um, the bus was leaving from Carlton and Dandenong at 7am. So if you're out Noble Parkway or Dandenong Way, you can still make the bus that's coming through today. It's going to arrive at the uh, Longford Guest Plant at 10am. Uh, you can go to um, amwuu.org.au forward slash SO bus trip. And if you've got your own car and you want to support these um, workers from the Longford Guest Plant, just make sure you get there at 10 a.m. and I think it's a bit of a nice segue with um, the next story which talks about things like jobs and sustainability. So Fiona Vella and Kath Rouse discussed the Northcote by-election, um, the candidates forest protection policies, I guess the huge potential of jobs and sustainability and tourism uh, if the proposal for a great national forest, national park went ahead and how polling shows Northcote residents regard forest protection as one of their top priorities. I'd been out to Talangi lots of times as a bushwalker, but never with people who had an understanding of ecology and ethnobotany of the forest Mm -hmm. and an understanding of the different plants and what was actually happening out there. So So did you start Newlands Friends of the Forest shortly after that? Well, Julie and I kept organising events. We first of all we just went to events organised by other people, but there weren't there wasn't very much happening, mm-hmm. and we wanted to support all different any other organisation. We weren't wanting to start anything. Yeah. Uh, we just wanted to support the campaign, but there weren't very many avenues of supporting the campaign, and we it wasn't enough just signing a petition and things. So. And we wanted to really understand the issues more deeply ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we brought people to the forest to have more tours and we organised different guest speakers Mm -hmm. before we were actually doing anything else to get a better understanding and so other people could go on that learning curve as well. And then we'd organised a few things and thought we'd better do it in some name of something. Mm -hmm. And that's how Newlands Friends of the Forest formed quite a long while after we started doing, um, yeah, organising talks and, um, you know, arranging the submissions for the Leadbeater Possum Recovery Plan and all of those sorts of things. So so a big part of what you and Julie do is educating the public and politicians about the value of the forest and, and doing whatever we can to protect them. So, and quite recently, you've been you've been you've been doing lots in you know, you've been taking politicians to the forest. Has that uh-huh. has that been? Have, do you feel good about those experiences? Uh, we're looking forward 
to seeing some positive outcomes from those experiences. Right. Like we, you know, it's really important. If people don't see the forest, it's very hard to explain. We're not talking about something academic. Mm. We're talking about forest within an hour of our doorstep and people don't understand it unless we bring them there. Yep. And especially those of us in the inner north. Yep. You can go directly to that forest. You don't go through the city. Mm. You don't have to go down through um, Lilydale and Ringwood. You know, we, we, we've, our waterways come directly mm. <laughs> through, you know, around Sugarloaf. And that's where we get our water from. But when people, each time we take people out, I think, you know, we influence a little bit by little bit and we, all, we also educate ourselves little bit by little bit. Yep. To every thing we do at every level, and you know the joyousness of doing it, um, even going to the Preston Market and talking to people there about greater gliders and how close the forest can be to us—it's yep. all really important. Taking politicians out or all different people out um, is one part of that. Yeah. Mm. So. On the topic of the Northcote by-election this Saturday, mm-hmm. what what kinds of policies have the candidates come up with in regards to the forest? Well, there's a whole variety. So the Greens really supports the Great Forest National Park and mm-hmm. the Emerald Link in East Gippsland mm-hmm. and the stop of the logging. So that's Lydia Thorpe's policy, so that's fabulous. Yeah. And the same with Bryony Edwards. She's a very strong supporter mm-hmm. of all of the, the forest policy, so that's fabulous, and the people then who are giving Greens their preference. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Claire, we've heard a, a couple of different things from Claire, Claire, Claire Burns. Burns. Yep. Claire Burns um, has, um, on Thursday night, said yep. she would work internally to support the Great Forest National Park. What, was that at the forum? At the forum at the Northcote Town Hall. Yep. Okay. Yeah, she received a, a number of questions yeah. um, from the Q&A from the audience, people from Northcote, yeah. asking about the forest both because of our water supply mm. and because of the impact on climate change. Mm. So, And then she re- also received a question about what would she do within the labour um, system to do that. Mm. So that was um, very... It was great to hear that she would work internally. Now, there was an article in Sunday's Age, and which I'm just about to read and and respond to now. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was showed, you know, a little bit of a different side. So I really need to understand that given um, we know that Claire spent time, and I know quite a number of people who spoke to Claire and let her know that the forest is a really important issue to them as voters in the Northcote electorate. You've done lots of awareness raising in the Northcote electorate about this issue. Do you, do you feel like that, that the, you know, the, the, the residents of that electorate, that this is an important issue for them? Yeah, look, mm. Friends of the Earth and a number of other groups did have done a lot of um, polling and they've got independent polling mm-hmm. on that. Now, I think it's um, for I think it's seventy three percent off the top of my head mm-hmm. it's a relevant issue, but it was well over eighty wow. percent of um, people in the electorate yep. you know strongly agreed with the um, 
forming the Great Forest National Park. Right. So I guess... But it, it, it is a really relevant issue. Yeah. And it's not... Um, we're just one little group working on this. Mm-hmm. There, it's been fabulous to see everyone from Australian Conservation Foundation, yeah. Friends of the Earth have done an extraordinary job with lots of different residents. Mm-hmm. They've got a big supporter group there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Wilderness Society have been supportive, as have the Victorian National Parks Association. Yep. So there's lots of residents really supporting this, and they've gone to the bigger organisations to get support in their campaigning there. It sounds really promising, and uh, it's, ha- it's heartening that they that they have put so much effort in- into connecting with the residents and raising their awareness. It's just in- it's incredible. Yeah, well, and it has come from residents as well. So if people, like, that's the thing. It's residents who've raised this with other organisations. And so it's coming from residents. So if people don't understand that residents think it's important, you know, there needs to be a real understanding that this actually is important to residents. I think it's people in Northcote, we've got a lot of younger people, a lot of renters, but people have... Um, a, a forward-thinking vision. Mm-hmm. People here, we we think of people outside ourselves and other mm-hmm. than our short-term problems. Yeah. If politicians think they can only address this year's needs of mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. without thinking of what people's... You know, people are wanting long-term... You know, benefits for society and themselves. You know, it's the long term. It's looking at our water. We were looking by 2028, our water supply won't be sufficient. So when we're doing a practice, that reduces our water supply. Mm. People in Northcote can see, wow, we don't want our government to be supporting that. We want our government to be thinking about forward planning. Yep. And so it's really sad if politicians don't realise that people actually do care. That was Kath Rouse, co-organiser of the community group Newlands Friends of the Forest, uh, speaking about the residents of Northcote and their great concern for long-term protection of Victoria's native forests and all the benefits that flow from such protection. Um, for more information, visit the Facebook page of Newlands Friends of the Forest as well as the Australian Conservation Foundation and Friends of the Earth um, websites. I know it's interesting, um, living right near, it's a border between Moreland Council, Darabin Council, um, or where Newlands is, Coburg, and they're pretty active, but, but, but they sit in the middle of two councils. And, you know, I know they had the Newland Save uh, Coburg High School um, uh, campaign, which went really, really well, that they did for years, and they ended up coming up with a, a Saving Coburg High so that it was a school. Now they've formed a Newland's Friends of the Forest, even though some of the residents that live in that pocket could be not even included in that by-election because they might fall on the other side, yeah, which is quite interesting. But um, we know that the the uh, election is coming so we'll keep you updated we won't talk too much about it but when the time comes i'm sure you will hear some more
um, might go to a few community announcements and then um, we'll come back and uh, just say yes. Yes, yes, yes. 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 <laughs> In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defense fund that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash solidarity defense fund a 3cr supporter United Struggle Project presents The Change, revolutionary hip-hop theatre, evolution to revolution. Join us for an interactive performance taking audience on an epic journey through the Collingwood Estate underground car park, transformed into many worlds for you to explore. Friday the 24th of November, 7pm, or the matinee show at 3pm on Saturday, November the 25th. $10 or $5 unwaged, no one turned away. Get your tickets now at Eventbrite or through our Facebook page. Hey, all you mob, be a part of the change. This ain't a pill to will, as in to apathy. Meet us on the front line and alternate and empathy. Burn. The change is a 3CR supporter. Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. We're back on 855 AM 3CR. It's just gone past 20, past 7. Now it's time to get to... I guess, yeah, the most exciting news we know yesterday, um, November the 15th, 2017, I would say the majority of people will probably remember where they were when the announcement was made at 10am yesterday, um, you know, with the announcement um, of the 
122 million dollar budget plebiscite. Exactly. What I knew exactly where I was. That was that was, <laughs> that, was um, that has been happening. Some of the headlines. Um, the age has just gone with. In Australia, embraces same-sex marriage. Yes, uh, the Australian has nation says yes, um, and the Herald Sun has we do. And interestingly enough, even the Financial Review, the Financial Review has the headline "Marriage Equality Within Weeks," um, which uh, I guess it's quoting uh, a sorely needed win for Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull uh, and, a, and his chief internal rival Tony Abbott. I think um, Malcolm Turnbull was saying he would like to get this done by Christmas. So he's a quote, the people of Australia have spoken and I intend to make their wish the law of the land by Christmas. This is an overwhelming call for marriage equality, Malcolm Turnbull says. And he needed $122 million to know that, <laughs> let's be honest. You know, like, it, like, now he's all, you know, let's, let's be honest here. Like, we're having an honest conversation He's making it sound like he will save, you know, Australia and, the, you know, he would get on with things and it would become a law. Don't forget that he has spent $122 million that could have built hospitals, social housing, scholarship for students from um, poor background to go to university. Of course, I was delighted with the yes. I was mm. absolutely delighted. I felt it, but emotional. I was walking, and I don't know. I just had goosebumps all over my body, <laughs> but because of the people that they spoke for the yes, not because of that government who had like spent 122 million from their people for something like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, we talked about it a few times in here about the fact that, um, you know, we live in um, pretty, uh, in the metropolitan areas, you know, uh, very, very diverse communities, we're very inclusive, we've got a lot of international students living with us, we yeah. mix with different society groups, um, and I think I'd mentioned a few times that it, it, I, I was unsure of how it would go. I know a lot of people, I, I really have, hadn't met anybody that I thought would vote no, yes. but until 10 o'clock yesterday, I still wasn't oh, sure yes, how the result nervous. would go. So in a sense, maybe the $122 million had to get spent, um, but as you say, there are other things that it needed to look social housing. Right. Um, we spoke about that the other week. Um, there's lots of other things, hospitals, making sure that everything's up to date, but more interestingly, by the numbers, I, I had a quick look. That, you know, the current population of Australia is sitting at 24.5 million as of Tuesday, November the 14th. Mm -hmm. There's one born every minute, as they say. Yeah. Um, and there was 12.7 million Australians who took part. Uh, 7.8 million people voted yes. yes. 4.9 million people voted no. Uh, there were 133 electorates who um, backed yes and 17 that backed no. So there's a, there's a, there's a long way to go. I mean, I did wake up this morning reading that the, um, the, the formal debate on the bill will be resuming this morning mm -hmm. at 9.30. Um, we know that there is a, 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 a legislation that's been written by Dean Smith, which yeah. um, I guess uh, some of the key points out of that is that the, the, well, it's a bill, will provide uh, protections for religious ministers who would not be forced to perform same-sex marriages. 
that that's fine before you know with a lot of people saying no the church has their role to play uh george brandis wants that to be extended to civil celebrants this is what worries me you know because they are basically writing down black and white that they are authorizing or they wish to authorize pure and clear discriminations. It's unbelievable that a civil servant working for the government, you uh, have a clear separation. Not civil celebrant doesn't work for the government. Oh, okay. You could marry people okay. if you wanted but to. But you know, like in my mind, <laughs> yeah. you know, like you should not be, you know, like you should be considered almost a civil servant. Yeah, you know, but like, it's a bit like you know, you wouldn't want to perform a, a, a marriage for different. Uh, uh, group, if you didn't associate. So with then that group. you shouldn't allow them to apply for this type of position. No, no, opinion. that's discriminatory too. No. So we're working on the bill. No, the thing is, the <laughs> thing is, there should be no. Uh, it's my opinion, and I have a yep. strong one. You should not discriminate against a gay couple deciding to get married. If you go to a town hall in France, we consider, for example, a town hall being part of the you the know state. like the state. Yep. So if you enter, you know, like that type of building, you should be inclusive. And if as a civil as a, as a civil celebrant you decide that is against your religious belief, that's fine. But don't apply for being one, you know, because No, 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 you can't do that. Like, why? Well, because me, civil celebrants ma- marry at vineyards as well. They don't have to be at a town hall. Oh, okay, so then I don't <laughs> no, study your system. Yeah, that's right. You know, because... Oh, you, you and I could be a civil celebrant. We just have to go and do the course, end up getting a certificate, and it's a business. It doesn't mean that because if you're a civil um, celebrant that you work for the government. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like that's the civil bit in that is just right? like... Right? Yeah, that's yeah the thing. it's just a job. Because, like... In Europe, for example, you go to the town hall if you want, like a civil marriage, you know, like an um, mm. official marriage. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, you're, you're considered. Yeah, but this, know, that, like I mean, that, that's a small part in actually yeah. what, um, what's really uh, part of the, the, the bill itself. I think coalition conservatives are going to want stronger yes. religious exemptions. Mm. And that's where the the the, the, the black and white. It's not a problem, but the black and white of what how the bill's going to look will depend on you know the the people that have said no. Because I think a lot of people might have said no for religious reasons more than anything. Um, but so that's that, yeah exactly. Yeah. My point actually is I'll make it clearer is that we cannot be complacent even if there is a yes because the fight has only begun. Yeah. That's, that's what I meant. Because then with this bill they can. In- Include a lot of clauses that will be subtly, you know, discriminatory. That's my fear. You know, like people need to keep pressing, you know, keep a, basically stay awake. The, you, the yes is just the beginning yeah, of, the, th- of, the, of the process. And I think it's interesting that New South Wales had the lowest yes vote yes. out of all the state um, as a result of Western Sydney electorates with... Um, and it says with high immigrant populations voting against it. So and yeah, so it's not. It's that's the point. That's the point because now people feel excited, which is fair enough. I was ex- extremely excited. Oh, I'm still excited. I'm still very <laughs> excited. It's an amazing outcome. But please stay awake and be active in you know like checking out the process. You know, don't let them just debate in the parliament and you know because they can turn out a bill that is extremely discriminatory if we are not wide awake and keep our eyes open. 
Well, we got a, a great message from Diversity Council of Australia. Um, uh, the CEO, Lisa Anise, was sort of talking about how they've campaigned for marriage equality for a number of years, and, they, and they're talking about how it's an issue of fairness and equality mm-hmm. and something that will truly obviously cement inclusion for all LGBTIQ plus colleagues, family and friends, um, and they obviously like to commend all of our member organisations, and there's a lot out there. And really what I'd like to say too is congratulations to all the people who oh, have campaigned yes. um, so positively for equality. All those who have made phone calls, knocked on doors, spoke to their neighbours, baked for friends and families, put up posters and wrote letters. Uh, and I think now, uh, I guess, you know, I've got kids. Uh, we are... We're part of history, mm-hmm. you know. Like it's happened all over the world. We obviously took a while for Australia to get there, but as you say, let's be let's be vigilant. There's a long way to go, but essentially, what this means is that there's people who will be having weddings, hopefully by January or February. That would be amazing. Yeah, and I like going to weddings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't care who's getting married, just as long as I get an invite to a, a party. Weddings are the bomb, and really, this is. Um, just to sort of highlight what it means, we've got um, a, a bit of a, a pre-record that we, we've had with us for a while, uh, and it talks, it's about Dave's dad, who openly voted no, uh, talking really about his son, uh, Hunter. Society can give it um, mm. through that respect. So uh, uh, let's, hold, let's hold hands. Come Yay. on, let's vote yes. Let's get it bloody done. Yay. Yay. Well done, guys. Yes for love from Joy.org today. You tag team with Dave, um, sorry, with Hunter, who was talking about how his dad, Dave, has openly voted no, which is um, sort of a, a bit of a segue. Obviously, we're, we're here um, for us to, to talk about a nation wedded to the future. And I guess as the pains of the past um, are consigned to history, um, with a move forward. But uh, we shouldn't forget that you know, the no campaigners will not, as they say, not go quietly. Um, you know, and Keith Shanahan here in the paper writes that dissenting voices really shouldn't be ignored. And when they've got somebody like uh, Scott Morrison leading the fight to protect parents' rights in regards to what's going to happen, as, as you know, I, I'm trying not to dwell on it. Where it's a day to celebrate today. It's um, a day to celebrate, but you still, I can't help but think we just need to tell our listener that they still need to stay awake and be completely involved in the process because it was a, of course it's a victory absolutely but it's just this, you can't be complacent you need to keep fighting because you still have Bruce or Coldwell it's Colwell. How do you pronounce Grace? Colwell? Colwell, yeah. They still voted no. Coldwell was 56.8% no. Bruce, 53.1% no. So it's just very important that people keep fighting. And what about the trans community? What are the ramifications about that? You know, because gay marriage, that's great. But we need to think that the LGBT QT community is vast and complex and people need to keep fighting for them because there is a ignorance that is obvious because if can you believe actually I was doing my research yesterday 
And, you know, I'm new to your country. I discovered that marriage was illegal in Tasmania until 1997, Dean. Not marriage. Not marriage. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Exactly. I can't even comprehend it. Uh, uh, being gay. Relationships. Being gay. Exactly. Yeah. I couldn't even comprehend it. I had to read it three times. And I think that, and that's, um, because of that's the point, too, about what you're saying. Um, we know, you know, people like um, the former uh, AMA president, Dr. Karen Phelps, who came out um, a while ago. This fight's been going on for decades. Um, I think there's been, since the movement for this, there's been a lot of um, uh, people who have got on to give support. Um, and there's going to be some more work to happen. Let's not for, let's not just stop just because the yes votes exactly, there. Exactly, that's moving. my point. Um, but yeah, I I I am um, really really excited. So we'll touch um, on a few more of these. Uh, there's pages and pages. What we could do is, um, you know, you could spend the whole morning going through the statistics. You could you could pick every country town. We could turn into um, bigots ourselves by pointing out exactly which places <laughs> voted no, which part of northern Queensland voted no. Let's shame them. I'm no, sorry. I, I believe in that. that. Yes, I can. <laughs> I Let's can. I just that. did it. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a fantastic, fantastic. Um, and I mentioned that, um, we had, uh, uh, Press release from Lisa and East uh, from Diversity Council of Australia, but there's many, many more. Um, so the Senate today uh, will debate the wording of a bill to change the Marriage Act. Mm-hmm. After we know, um, and yeah, getting back to it, it's sort of it, it's a, there's a private members bill which is going to be sponsored by both major parties. Um, it was interesting to see Bill Shorten yes, there yesterday. The State Library. Uh, yeah, I, and that's why it would have been good for me to go down there because I wonder whether he was actually out at 10 a.m. when it was announced or he was sort of hiding and then once it came out he put his scarf on and walked out. <laughs> it you know, was back. It was yeah, back in the CBD. You couldn't you just, you just never know with these politicians. He's probably just sort of waiting there in the background <laughs> as soon as if it was a no he would have jumped into his car and just took, taken yeah. off. Now, you know, it's all about getting the people to think that he's he's always been pro. Yes, both <laughs> though, which is good. Um, so what we might do is go to a song and touch on with our next guest something we spoke about last week, which is the uh, horrible conditions on Manus Island. Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defence fund. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N 
facebook.com forward slash Solidarity Defence Fund, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Breakfast. It's Thursday. And up the top of that, we heard Tears of Joy by Lucinda Williams. Up now, we're going to talk to Sophie, who um, was working on Manus Island earlier this year. Good morning, Sophie. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for coming. Um, So can you explain a bit of what your role was when you were working at Manus? Sure. Um, I was employed as part of the claims assistance provider team, which is a subcontractor um, through Australian Border Force that is there to give the men uh, independent legal assistance with their refugee status claim. Mm-hmm. So where does the refugee claim go? Is that like to get to come here or is that for the refugee claim to be supported in PNG? Yes, yeah, so that's for their refugee claims to be um, resettled in Papua New Guinea. So, it's, so like all the other um, service providers at the centre, everyone's contracted through the Australian government, but all the services are there to resettle people in Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. So when you first arrived, what was it like in the detention centre and on the island? It was it was a lot like all the photos that you see before before going all the news things. It's a very um, it's a very beautiful island. It's a tropical paradise. Um, and it's a really really lovely part of the world, as is much of Papua New Guinea. But the centre itself is pretty desolate and barren. Um, it's very dry. It's very hot. It's uh, it's a prison. It's there's fences everywhere. It's very things very locked in and very controlled. Uh, it's a very sombre place. It's a very tedious place. It's, but it's, I don't know if you've ever read the book Catch-22. I felt a lot of the time like I was just walking around inside that book. Sounds really intense. Um, so in your article, there was an article on BuzzFeed recently um, yep. that interviewed you, and in that article you said that you had a number of concerns with the process that you were involved in and what the Australian government is doing with the refugee claims on Manus. Yeah. Can you explain some of those concerns and some of the like reasons why you felt like you're in catch twenty two. Yeah, sure. Um, I think in in Australia, when you're engaging in any sort of legal process, be it refugee status claim or otherwise, there's a lot of um, resources and recourses that can be taken if um, if people don't think that that legal and due process is being adhered to. And I think one of the main concerns on the island is that. There was nothing or no no avenue that anyone could take refugee or observer really if um if they didn't think that due process was being adhered to. So there were you know, Papua New Guinea, as I said before, it's a lovely country, but it's not really set up to process a high number of claims such as these. Uh, the immigration department in Papua New Guinea just didn't have the resources or the capacity to to really process these claims in any sort of um, high volume and so I think through that they just had a lot of you know just many things just just kind of fell to the wayside um, you know people's country information maybe not being accepted um, not because that wasn't true but just because the assessing officers just lacked the capacity to, to process and see these claims properly um, Australian Border Force was a uh, supposed to have a mentoring role in coaching the Papua New Guinea Immigration Department through 
through their work, uh, but from what I observed, that they they appear to often overstep that mark and have more of a um, more of a directive nature rather than um, helping and assisting them. With yeah. that, with that directive role, was that to like facilitate those claims going through? If the people that work for PNG weren't doing a good job, or was that, you know, were they overstepping the mark and making problems happen in those refugee claims? Well, it's hard to say um, because it's all from my observation, um, and I'm hesitant to to um, name something that I can't back up. Um, but, you know, from, from what I observed, I got the feeling that they were, um, you know, rather than mentoring the PNG officers on how to process the claims, they're actually having input um, and directing the Papua New Guinea officers about whether or not someone met the requirements as a ref for a refugee status. So having actual say in the claims rather than just mentoring um, the PNG officers on how to process. Um, so, Sophie, you sort of mentioned, um, and you might not know much, but you were talking about one of your concerns, including that immigration officials are relying on Australian immigration law principles in making yep. decisions. Um, yep. You know, and I guess with the current... Uh, uh, situation at uh, Manus Island. We know that the PNG court has quashed the, the detainees' last ditch bid to keep Manus Centre open. So, you know, with your concerns and what's happening there, what what do you think might be the should have been the best way to to, to look after the detainees? Because obviously, um, Australian immigration law principles don't really work over there. But then it seems like the Papua New Guinea Supreme Court doesn't really understand the magnitude of what's happening there. Um, do you mean what, what do I think should happen now or what do I think should have happened? Well, maybe what should have happened or, yeah, I mean, well, I, just, I just find it quite bizarre that, yeah, the, you know, obviously we were relying on immigration law, but all of a sudden it doesn't seem to come into effect when it's uh, at this juncture, so to speak. Yeah. Look, I think this is the thing when you have um, someone in power like the Australian government and the Australian government have power over a country like Papua New Guinea, is that you are able to use certain... You're able to use laws when they suit you. So, you know, I mean, Australia should never have passed the buck onto a country mm. like Papua New Guinea or onto any country to process these claims. Um, it's quite a colonial move. It's quite a power hierarchical structural move to then um, put put that job onto someone else. Mm. Um, Especially by saying it, it ended... Especially by saying it ended yeah. because we've closed the detention centre now, you know, um, don't, don't, don't seek any damages from us, you've got to go yeah. and seek it from PNG yeah. government. 100%. You know, they, they passed, they, they said, we don't want to deal with these people. They've made, they've, you know, t- chosen a country with, uh, who's struggling economically, um, so they're able to be used like this, and then they've just closed it and walked away. So it's, it's really disturbing, and it just goes, it highlights again that Papua New Guinea has not was not and is not in the position to process a claims like these because, mm. you know, Australia walks away and closes the centre and washes their hands and says they're done with it. And it's inevitable that a situ- like, situation like this was going to happen. Um, during your time there, and I know that there has been incidences of violence over the years that the detention centre was <coughs> has been around, but there was something that happened 
while you were there. I guess I just want to ask you about that in terms of the really kind of fraught situation that the detainees are on Manus Island. Sure. Um, yeah, so I was there during the Good Friday shooting and, you know, again, it was it was just like being in Catch-22 was this thing where it was a really horrible thing and, it, you know, it, it scared a lot of people and um, it really highlighted, again, all the fears that everyone has about resettling there, but Again, it was it wasn't it wasn't surprising. No one was really surprised that it happened, including including Australian Border Force. Um, it you know I, I can't say enough that Manus is a beautiful island with some really lovely people there. But Papua New Guinea is not an economically stable country, and it's not a safe country for um, people who are fleeing persecution to resettle. Uh, it you know I think any community across the world would be pretty uh, up in arms if. They lived in a small town and if someone said, we're going to rehouse 700 men in your town, it's, it's not, it's, it's, you know, there's lots of tensions between, um, people who live on Manus and the refugees and the Navy there. And, you know, it's the Good Friday shootings just really, you know, brought home that it's, it's not, it's not a country where it's viable to resettle, um, seven to 900 traumatized people who were trying to re who were trying to flee persecution to put them in a place where uh they've been shot at and they get brutally mugged whenever they leave the center sounds like a really intense kind of horrible situation for those people to be in it's terrifying i mean when that shooting was going on um a lot of the guys said that they felt like they were they, were, they felt like it, they were being um attacked by ISIS again. I mean, a lot of these guys are fleeing places where ISIS groups are um, are rampant, and they said that the Good Friday shootings made them feel like they were back back at home hiding from ISIS fighters. I mean, it was it was a horrible time, and it really, really scared a lot of those men um, because it put them in such a place of being powerless. They, and they're in a, in a situation where they are powerless. Yeah. Um do you have anything else to add about your experiences there before we wrap up? Um, look, I think it's all been said before, uh, and now it's at the crux. You know, it's, Australia has a very brief opportunity at the moment to to give up the slogan of, you know, if you come, if you try to come here by boat, you won't be resettled here. It's just a slogan, and it's not worth putting people's lives on the line for. Um, so I think Australia's got a very brief little window in which to finally do the right thing mm-hmm. um, which is our international obligation to process the claims of people who come to our shores. Yeah, Thank you so much for your time um, it was really great to have some insight into the situation there and hear what you have to say. Thank you for having me on. Thanks Sophie. Thanks. Great Voices CDs on 3CR these CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs.
Eight Days of Solidarity with Refugees is a grassroots campaigning to support long-term detained refugees. Between the 12th and 19th of November, there will be vigils, film nights, a community picnic, a solidarity walk and more. Anyone is welcome to make an event or organise solidarity actions. Look at more info on 8 Days of Solidarity for Refugees.wordpress.com. 8 Days of Solidarity is a 3CR supporter. Bisexual Alliance is a non-profit organisation dedicated to raising awareness and supporting people who are bisexual, people who are multi-gender attracted, their partners and their families. Bisexual Alliance runs several monthly discussion groups in and outside of Melbourne to offer support, a safe space to chat about your experiences and to explore others' experience of multi-gender attraction. These groups are for bisexuals, those who are questioning and their loved ones. For more information, visit bi-alliance.org or email info at by-alliance.org You are invited to Sampari Exhibition celebrating West Papuan culture Sampari a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination Art, discussion spoken word performance debate and Melanesian food and culture Friday 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Community Radio. Um, it is Thursday and it's one minute past eight. At the top there we talked to Sophie who um, worked as an assistant supervisor of the claims assistance provider team on Manus Island from January to July this year. Um, we just had a discussion about what it's like there and some of the concerns and ethical dilemmas that happen when you work for the border force in a place like Manus. Um, up next, we have Dr. Shakira Husseini, who is an honorary research fellow at the University of Melbourne, who specialises in gender, Islam and multiculturalism. And she has been reflecting on the marriage equality vote, particularly the areas who voted no. And for this, um, we also have Shahrazad, who is a guest presenter here at 3CR. Hello, Shakira, are you there? Yes, I am. Good to speak to you. Good to speak to you too. Um, hi, Shakira. Thank you for coming on. Um, so yesterday you uh, reflected on the issue, um, saying that you were forecasting a break with tradition this year. Instead of wogs that stole Christmas, it's going to be wogs that stole homophobia. Can you reflect on that? Yeah, this was partly through seeing a lot of the activity on Twitter. There was a lot of noise about, well, what can you expect in these suburbs with large Chinese and Muslim populations, obviously, they have this ingrained homophobia. And I'll just say, first of all, fantastic result on the, you know, nationwide, and congratulations to everyone who worked so hard to achieve that. But, but secondly, yeah, I am upset for friends who, queer friends who grew up in those particular electorates. I have a disproportionate number of my queer Muslim friends grew up in those suburbs of Sydney and still have 
family members there. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very distressing also to see some Muslim community leaders gloating that although they may have won the nationwide battle, lost, sorry, they, although they may have lost the nationwide battle, they won the, in those particular battlegrounds, which in some ways I think was more important to them so that, that they get that yes vote in their particular little empires. But um, having said that, the reason we're in this situation is because Malcolm Turnbull didn't want to risk his political skin by standing up to the much more powerful homophobes in his own political party. And I think it's not really useful to start hating on you know, these reasonably recently arrived migrants who had, I think a lot of them been getting by on this sort of don't ask, don't tell basis with regard to um, LGBTI issues. But once they were asked, of course they were going to bloody well tell. And who stirred up that particular hornet's nest? Who put us in this position where, um, where people felt obligated to say one way or the other instead of just um, getting along with their gay and lesbian and so on, um, friends and neighbours and relatives. And some Muslim community leaders who I was taken aback to see them, you know, telling Muslims that it was, that is, that homosexuality was un-Islamic and therefore they must vote no. When I knew that they had good working relationships with members of the LGBTI community over issues like Manus, over issues like, um, Islamophobia in Australia, why now were they telling people that they had to vote no? And I and others were trying to say, well, you can just abstain, actually. You don't have... I mean, there wasn't any point in trying to advocate a yes vote. Actually, no, you're not obligated mm -hmm. to vote no. You could just abstain. And I note that there was a slightly lower turnout in the areas that returned a no vote, so I'm hoping that that um, just abstain line might have made some tiny impression. So um, we've already seen some um, reporting. So this uh, this morning on uh, the Australian front page, we've got um, you know some ce ce a celebratory pic um, of people celebrating. Yes, and then right next to it, you've got a picture of two women in um, in headscarves <laughs> who voted no. You know, so yeah. um, and I've I've seen that there's been quite some some. So uh, on Twitter, for example, there were people there were people tweeting, um, "Oh, here's here's a percentage of um, uh, people born in Australia by electorate who voted yes." Yeah, that again is predictable but distressing to see. And I will note that the far right has been using this Muslims are a threat to the nation's gaze line for quite some time when there was the proposal to build the mosque in Ballarat. There was a lot of talk about how well this is just such a threat to Ballarat's, you know, gays and lesbians that it cannot possibly be allowed to happen from these very right-wing people who are themselves not exactly queer-friendly, just as during the Howard era there was a lot of talk about, about Muslims as a threat to um, to gender equality from figures who were not exactly feminist, the same kind of opportunistic, you know, dynamic is at work now over the results from the from the same-sex marriage survey. 
and we have to just navigate that somehow. And we had, I think, after Orlando, since Orlando, there has been more open discussion about the topic of like sexuality within Muslim communities, which is a, of course, a awful and horrible event to have, you know, provoked that. But it is underway. Um, it used to be very difficult to have those conversations, and um, and people who were and they were tending to take place like um, in private spaces, not openly. In the wake of Orlando, it has been happening more openly, and I've been, I will say, you know, pleasantly surprised by some of the people who have. With within the Muslim community, yeah. who were telling people at least not to vote no, people who were themselves quite socially conservative, yeah, and but who did come out on well, what I'd regard and okay. regard as the right side in the end mm-hmm. on this. So I think that there is change underway slowly, Great. but it's there. Okay, thank and you. It isn't incredible that people get chucked out of their family either. I will say that some families who initially exclude their kids because of their sexuality do end up accepting them and their partners and their kids, you know, yeah, much more than Tony Abbott. Yeah. Thank you so much, Shakira, for coming on. Um, so that was Dr. Shakira Hussain reflecting on the tensions arising between high migrant areas who voted no and homo-nationalism. You can follow her on Twitter at Shakira Hussain. Yeah, that's... Um, to even break it down to that level, you know, we... I think we talked about how it's still difficult and it's going to be difficult, but for it to be broken down by certain groups as to picking people, their ethnicity, why they voted, mm. when somehow assuming they know the reasons why they voted. It's just no, another yes, way to numbers. discriminate. Yeah. It's just another way for me to discriminate against minorities. It's just, why can we go, let, just let's get on with the work, make it legal. Organize your first wedding, and then let's talk about trans community. <laughs> I like uh, you that. know, like, invite me to the party. You know, invite <laughs> me to the party, please. You know, but the thing is, uh, I'll be in Europe. But um, <laughs> the thing is, you'll be reporting. Uh, by the, uh, I'll be reporting. But the thing is, it just annoys me deeply. You know that those fake debate to almost, you know, like it's like they're doing a Trump style, you know, like a deflecting. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, they have an investigation, but look, oh. He's wearing a pink tra- trouser, you know, like, and then they just talking nonsense. Get onto it. No debate. Pass the law. Not discriminatory. And let's start talking about trans community that are persecuted on a daily basis, right? And let's stop spending 122 million for this type of issues and build hospitals, offer free health care for your two-year working holiday visa <laughs> student <laughs> and, you know, for instance, and social housing and, you know, all of those issues that could be dealt with instead of a plebiscite that is not even binding legally. I think. Dean, what do you think? Am I being too... No, you're, you're spot on. You're spot on. I like your passion. Um, I think one step at a time. One yeah. step at a time. Um, but let, let's let's do it whilst it's hot. You know what? In France we said just do it now because it's a hot topic. <laughs> drop it like so it's hot. just drop it like it's hot. You know, like don't don't wait until it's cold and people don't care. Well, what we can, what we'll do now is yeah. get into something else that I think you'll be passionate about. We from the 25th of November, 
the International Day of Elimination of Violence Against Women will be running right up until the 10th of December. And there is a fantastic event next Tuesday, which will be leading up to that. And I think this is something that I um, think will be a great start. So there's a Melbourne Homeless Collective, so we've been talking about the issue of social housing, um, mm-hmm. are going to receive $50,000 uh, for a new project helping women fleeing violence and regain financial independence with local jobs. To find out a little bit more about this event, we are joined by the Director of Melbourne Homeless Collective, Donna Stolzenberg. Good morning, Donna. Good morning, Dean. How are you? Uh, I'm well, thank you. You've got Grace and uh, Rashida and myself here. Um, Fan, this is, I just mentioned, obviously, we've got 16 days of activism starting at at the end of uh, a couple of weeks' time, but this is fantastic news. It's wonderful news. It's um, to receive the grant from um, Bendigo Bank Community Sector Banking for the Played Up Project, um, which is what we're starting next year, is going to mean a world of difference for at least 36 women um, that will be coming through the program for uh, with us. And this is um, is this the first uh, program of its kind? As far as we know, it is. Um, The Plate Up program is very different in in what it does is it supports women to regain employment and, above all, regain financial independence. Because as we know, with domestic violence and domestic abuse, that financial control is often a huge part of that. And that's why many women either can't leave or are forced to go back because um, surviving financially... Uh, we've, we've got an epidemic of economic and financial inequality um, against women anyway. So the Plate Up Project, what, what that will do is seek to give women skills, but not just skills, but it's also direct links into um, work opportunities within the hospitality industry. But it's not just kitchen work either. So, um, you know, it, it could be in management, it, it could be in reception, it could be in anywhere um, to do with hospitality, but we'll be linking them with prospective employers along the way. Um, who they'll meet and actually get work experience and training with um, along the way. So it, as far as we know, it's the only project that incorporates sort of both sides of the coin. So the other part that we do as well is we work with the employers to educate them on the effects of domestic abuse and violence and what that actually means to women and, and what things they might be wanting to um, put into place to support the worker that's coming in, but also uh, making sure that we do adhere to our privacy policies as well. And, and I think as a, as a collective, you know, the, the Melbourne Ho- Homeless Collective works on, on those initiatives that provide the support, uh, you know, and, and I guess uh, food and sanitary items to women experiencing homelessness, um, in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. But the, the, the main thing here is, um, you know, we all complain about these banks and fees and charges. There are actually provide funds for a worthy cause like um, gender violence, and women violence in particular is important. It's a, it really is, and I think it's a little bit of a hidden treasure as well. So uh, the grant that we're receiving um, through Bendigo Bank Community Sector Banking is, of course, what's funding uh, the Plate Up Project. And what that does is it allows us to reach our potential. There's a lot of not-for-profits out there who have some amazing ideas, some amazing people, but we need that, that lift to actually get things going. And we've actually run a couple of other smaller projects um, that have been funded. Um, well, they're sort of crowdfunding projects that funded on the ACT platform through Bendigo Bank and um, yeah, through community sector banking. We also run a project called the School Project that supports children to get back into school, children who are 
homeless because of um, domestic violence or abuse, mm. um, living in cars. And we received a grant from the Commonwealth Bank of Australia for that as well. So, but I, I think it's um, it's something that not many people realise is um, is actually out there. Um, you know, that's actually happening. So, but yeah, it, it's great, and, and it does help us to reach our potential and, and help more people. And in terms of, um, you know, uh, the, the event itself next week, obviously it's leading into a, a quite a, uh, and I was talking to a, a few of my work colleagues who have the fever. As a, as a man, you sort of don't understand who, who, sorry about that, came out wrong. Um, women that I work with, you don't understand. We understand you, Dean, don't worry. <laughs> you we- don't understand how hard it is to be in that situation. As a, as a woman, to be in a situation where domestic violence takes over your life, puts you in peril, puts your kids in peril, and you don't really have the support too. So organisations like you guys um, are doing a fantastic job. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. And it's, it's really hard to actually see homelessness and experience that from the perspective of the person who's actually going through it. And one of the things that we also do is uh, sort of a, a homeless awareness session for corporate schools and universities to do a bit of myth-busting. And that's one of the things that we're wanting to do with Played Up Project, as I mentioned before, is talk to the employers about what it actually means from the perspective of the person who's going through that experience mm-hmm. and what are the barriers that actually puts in place for them. And it's really hard to understand unless you've either been there or you're working um, in that sector to see the impact that it has and why it is so hard for women to leave. There's very, very little support out there and this is why we see many of them ending up uh, accessing homelessness services um, throughout um, all, all across Australia. And we, we've got you know hundreds of thousands of women every year that are accessing the services and there just isn't enough to go around. So it often means that they, they do end up having to stay in that situation where they are. And then they get blamed yeah. for it. You know, yeah. well, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you just go? And, and it's a fine really line, too, when you know that something like that is happening, but the woman doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the courage, and cannot get yeah. out of that situation. And also recognising right. and realising that um, when... You often when women leave a relationship, that's actually when they're at the most risk of serious violence and death. And so, you know, women that are in that ex- that violent relationship are assessing that all the time and making doing risk assessments for themselves and making sure them and their kids are safe within that as well. Exactly. And even before that, it's about recognising that they are in that situation. There are many women for whom domestic abuse and violence is normalised because it's are generational, mm. so they don't realise that what's actually happening to them um, is violence and that it's escalating and that it will get to that point where their life is in danger um, quite quickly and mm. they don't see it coming because it may have happened to their mother, their grandmother, their sister's cousin's aunt. So, and, I, yeah. um, and also just the way in which social structures promote violence against women as well and, you know, don't attack that man who's using that violence as well because I think it's easy to be like oh women don't understand when they're in violence relationships because of intergenerational trauma and experiences of that but it's also those men that are committing those acts of violence and that society you know holds them and doesn't ever exclude them from society from using that violence as well like I think it's important to flip it and center the men that are using that violence in that. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely agree. And it, it's such a multifaceted um, issue and problem that there are so many areas that we need to work on. Mm. And it's something that we do need to concentrate on because it, it is still happening. It's still escalating. 
and we're not actually reaching enough people to, in all areas, not only the prevention of violence against women, but community education, educating um, the, the perpetrators of the violence as well and um, educating everyone that, that's involved, um, you know, employers. Um, there, there are many people um, using company um, tools like computers to harass um, mm. their victims and, mm. you know, this needs to be stopped as well. There are people using company cars to drive around and stalk their victims and there needs to be policies and procedures put in place across the board to um, just stamp that out and say, look, it's not acceptable. We're not going to accept that anymore and stop normalising, um, you know, this type of, of violence against women because the ramifications of it are just horrific and it does affect children and they grow up with the effects of the violence that's happened to their parents and um, you know, may end up in relationships that sort of mimic what you know what they, what they have. And Donna, yeah. we, we could talk about this all morning, but the event is on Tuesday, November the 21st at 10am, 17 yes. Yarra Street, South Yarra. Yes, just quickly, right, at the 8%. Sorry? Just quickly, how can people, if, if you need volunteers, how can people join up to, to help you with the Plate Up project? If, if people, what we really need at the moment, so the Plate Up project is go, going to involve uh, food for cooking, for uh, we need equipment um, for the, the participants to use. So if anyone, um, any, anyone wants to donate produce, anyone, uh, if, if there are any chefs, any uh, food specialists who want to come on board and actually do some of the teaching, we've got the outline of the program all set up. So we need uh, all different types of chefs, even a butcher, um, greengrocers, uh, people who, if any kind of food specialist out there, if they'd like to be involved. We're running three pilot projects throughout the year. And, Fantastic. Um, so if they contact us, info at mpp.org.au. Fantastic. Info at npp.com.au. Donna, thank you for joining us on 3CR and have a good morning. Thanks very much, Dean. Great and we feed up. Thank you. Now what we might do is quickly get on to our next guest. We uh, thought he might not be able to make it, but there is an um, there is a special rapporteur for housing. Uh, so vacant housing rates are sort of rising in our major cities um, across Australia <laughs> on census. Um, we've got uh, Raquel Rolnick who is going to be launching her new book tonight called War on Places. We have actually been talking to, I can't remember the lady's name, about no and nimbyism. You know, we've been yes, talking about right. that, which has been, um, yeah, quite, um, up to, well, we know what, what the issue is. We yeah. don't have enough houses for people. Um, we so, don't have enough houses. They don't want to build houses. You know, they don't want to have social housing around there. Yeah, we uh, had that debate. And we know that 11% of housing was recorded as unoccupied. Yes. Um, you know, which is a total of over 1 million uh, dwellings. So joining us now, um, we're going to have Carl Fitzgerald from Renegade Economics, who have long been campaigning for the implementation of a vacancy tax. Good morning, Carl. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully we didn't get you out of bed too early here on 3CR oh. Thursday Breakfast. Oh, we're wide awake and pumping, uh, <laughs> checking out uh, discussions this morning about all the vacant properties in holiday, uh, well, in coastal communities and, and rural areas. 
Yeah, that 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 that, that we won't. That one, I think, is a quite a difficult one, isn't it? Because um, you know, even in places like uh, let's say St Leonard's, Port Arlington. It, the, 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 the properties are vacant, but can you put people there because maybe there's not enough jobs for them to be able to get around there? So I guess, yeah, can you can you give me a, shed some light as to what that sort of focus for all those vacant holder houses has been about? Well, certainly that's been a driver for the growth of those communities, but when you see some of these stats that uh, Why River, you know, Mm. 80% vacant properties there. Uh, what does that do for those who do want to live there? Yeah. And it pushes up the rent. So, um, yeah, the big problem, though, of course, is in uh, the CBD, uh, particularly around the universities. There's a lot of vacant properties there. And investors uh, taught at uh, property spruiking seminars that uh, these international students have lots of money, so buy up around there. And, uh, you know, if you've got five properties and uh, you don't lease out two of them, that's in a way good because it manufactures scarcity and enables uh, the investor class to jack up the rent. And so what what influence has um, the the rise of, um, what do you call that, the, the Airbnb for all those properties who are around the universities? Oh, great, great point. I mean, it's a huge issue that sweeping the globe and uh, in Melbourne uh, the numbers that uh, we've crunched it's about 4.7% of uh, the inner Melbourne uh, rental stock has been transformed into uh, Airbnb um, rentals and the profit margins there are just incredible earlier this year on uh, the Renegade Economist I interviewed uh, Professor David Waxmuth who'd uh, analysed uh, Airbnb's effect on New York and uh, the the difference in returns for investors was something between 80 to 800 percent going with uh, the short-term rentals compared to renting to people who actually want to live and contribute to that community. And and I think that in a sense can be a way that even if we implemented a vacancy tax, somebody could just go every weekend, one weekend a month it's rented. Um, And you know, so it's going to be hard to try and get a great vacancy tax which can actually get those investors to make sure that those houses are available for people to live in. Yeah, well, this is um, something we've been campaigning uh, on for close to a decade now. We've been releasing this uh, uh, speculative vacancies report into empty housing in Melbourne using water consumption as a proxy for vacancies. And, uh, yeah, the the tax that's been announced by Daniel Andrews is uh, certainly a step in the right direction imposing, uh, say, a $5,000 uh, yearly tax uh, for those who keep their property vacant for six months or longer, um, using predominantly water consumption as a measure to uh, identify that uh, it is going to be something that will make them question leaving these properties empty. And uh, when you come to owning an apartment, uh, as soon as someone steps in the door and, and your kitchen starts depreciating, that's all you've really got. You, you know, if you own a house, uh, what you're relying on in terms of the price going up is the locational the value. Well. But for apartments, it's uh, not so uh, not such a, a prevalent trend. So keeping them empty, uh, particularly for foreign investors, has been quite a trend. 
And now tonight you've got a launch, a launch of a book called War and Places at 6 p.m. tonight, a book written by Raquel Rolnick. Can you, um, you know, give us a, a brief synopsis and how people can, can come along in about a minute or so? So we're about to <laughs> yeah, nearly sure, finish so. Right. Professor Rolnick was the former UN Special Rapporteur for Housing. She's a heavyweight. She started uh, talking about this financialization of housing close to a decade ago during the GFC. My interview with her last night was incredible. She's really passionate. Um, the book talks about this seismic change uh, as housing is now the largest transfer of wealth uh, in history. Uh, it's the most valuable asset, and she's compiled together a beautiful book looking at uh, these global trends. It's not just the global cities. It's nearly every city on the planet now is facing this uh, international land shark elite who are buying and selling real estate uh, mm. from a hammock. Like, so, like, like our, young, our young friend Gurner, who loves his smashed avocados. But, uh, Carl, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on 3CR. And Renegade Economics can be heard every Wednesday at 5.30pm on 3CR. Good luck tonight. Thank you. And that was uh, Carl Fitzgerald talking to us about an issue which um, I think yeah, we'll keep going on for a while. Housing is it's, it's crazy, and especially with people not being afforded to buy a house, not even let alone being able to afford to rent where you want to mm. live. You exactly. Know. It should be a human right again. Free housing. Free housing. <laughs> Rashida. Rashida. At least one home. I don't understand that some people can buy 11 houses. They should be legal. <laughs> Illegal. Illegal. Uh, Why do you need 11 or 12 or 14? Yeah, you might have 11 children. Let's wrap yeah. up the show. Yeah. We had, at the top of the show, we had um, a interview with Fiona. I think Kath Rouse did that. Yeah. Um, and she was talking about the North Korea by-election. Uh, at 7.30, we spoke about the postal vote, uh, the yes vote, which, you know, I think we're pro. Uh, and at 7.45... Um, we talked to Sophie, um, who worked on Manus Island at the start of this year, um, assessing refugee legal claims. And the last half hour was... Very tense. We uh, had <laughs> three interviews in half an hour. We had Dr. Shakira Hussain talking to us about really uh, the yes vote and what it meant for multinationalism. Like, you know, the, the, the no, the reasons why there was a bit of a no. Um, I lost my train of thought there. At 8.10, we had Donna Stoltzweig, Director of the Melbourne Homeless Collective, talking to us about the importance of providing safety for women in danger. And at 8.20, we had Carl Fitzgerald talking to us about the book launch today and, I guess, the whole vacant, vacant housing rates that are happening in Victoria. Thank you very much for joining us on 3 South Thursday Breakfast. I'm rushing because we're taking up Lost in Science space. Yeah. We'll be back next week. Rashida, thank you for joining us on 3CR. Thank you. I've been in Europe commenting. Well, yep, thank you very much. It's time for <laughs> Lost in Science. See you all next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.